welcome to this edition of Rational Perspective. Today, the making of a great editor, the George Palmer Playbook. George Palmer passed away in Palm Springs on New Year's Day from pneumonia. It happened 11 days after he was dragged to hospital from a tennis court. Palmer, who lived in California since the 1990s, was 92 years old. His passing has sparked an outpouring of emotion in the country where he spent the prime of his career as a financial editor. In many ways, Palmer was the father of business journalism in South Africa, joining the pioneering Financial Mail as deputy editor at its launch in 1959. He took over as the editor of the magazine in 1961 and continued running it until his retirement in 1977. Dozens of those that he trained went on to become household names in journalism and other fields, both in South Africa and internationally. Among them, Tony Hurd, the globally respected former editor of the Cape Times, whose 1985 interview with the then-banned ANC president Oliver Tambo earned him the Golden Pen Award from the International Federation of Journalists. We'll hear more from Tony and others in due course, but let's go back to the beginning and how George Palmer arrived in South Africa in the first place. Let's take up the story now with Barry Wood. George ended up in South Africa as a member of the Royal Air Force for training as a navigator on Wellingtons and... uh, Lancaster bombers, I think near Grahamstown. And as the ship made its way to South Africa, five weeks, the food went moldy. Uh, There was near mutiny at Mombasa. And time they got to uh, Durban, George thought he'd seen the promised land. And he fell in love with the country. And when he was back in England, waiting to be shipped to Asia to take on the Japanese, the Americans dropped the bombs and the war was over. So apparently it was very hard in Britain to get passage back to South Africa. George's word, he wangled a bursary at UCT and then wangled passage on Union Castle to Cape Town. So that's how he ended up in South Africa. That's Barry Wood, a longtime friend of Palmer's and a typical example of his protégés. For 20 years, Wood was the chief economics correspondent at The Voice of America and his writing has appeared in many of the world's leading publications. But let's get back to Palmer. Shortly after arriving in South Africa in 1946, the lad from Thames Ditton became actively involved in the early anti-apartheid movement, which was spearheaded by the Torch Commando. And that was led by World War II fighter pilot ace Sailor Milan. I don't know that story of George's early involvement with the Torch Commando, but it clearly was a powerful force in his development. And he was active in that in Cape Town. He was also active in the formation of the Liberal Party under Lewis Kane Berman, John's father. And John found the notes of the first group of 10 or 15 informing the Liberal Party, and George Palmer's name is there. That must have been 1950, 52, something like that. But George was committed against apartheid. But, of course, he wasn't a journalist. He did a BCOM. And it was only when the FM was established that he was asked to be part of that creation. And that was, I think, 1959, and he became the deputy editor and learned to write under a person who'd been sent out from The Economist in London. 
An editor is made or broken by those that he has around him, and a big part of Palmer's success was due to the unusual techniques that he used when hiring people. This was typified in the way that Wood got his first journalism job. I went into George's corner office, ninth floor of the Carlton Center. This is uh, late October of 74. And I gave my pitch, and he listened. We talked, and uh, he said, I'm sorry, I can't use you. So I went back down the passage, and Graham Hatton, who was... um, number two or three at the FM. He said, don't take that. Go back and tell him he's made a terrible mistake. (laughs) And I did. I said, Mr. Palmer, look, I can be of value to you. And he slapped the table with his hand, and he said, all right, I'll give you a six-week trial at 600 rand a month. And that's how I got the job. It was the biggest professional break I ever had because it launched my career in journalism under a very strict editor. I learned how to write working at the Financial Mail for two years. During the research and the compilation of this podcast, I leaned heavily on Hazel Shaw, George Palmer's wife, for 32 years. She's from Cape Town, a tennis prodigy at a young age, injured at 16, so she couldn't continue with it. But she and George made a life in both South Africa and California later on. She was with him when he died. She picks up the story on how his unusual hiring techniques made a big difference, not just in his career. It wasn't very different to being with people or having friends. George, be having the brain that he had, he was, I think, attracted to intelligence. He was not particularly intrigued by degrees. So um, it didn't matter to him what your status was. Um, he, he certainly was intrigued by native intelligence um, and your ability to respond. So he believed that if you had that basic intelligence and you had a work ethic, he could make it work. So he hired people who weren't necessarily journalists. He felt he could train them. If they had the basic ingredients that that one could mold and train. So we really thought almost anybody could do almost anything um, except maybe be a rocket scientist. Um, that had, it was intelligence, um, an ability to respond, to understand information, and how you responded to information um, that I think attracted him, which is why he hired some people who really had no writing experience at all. So he would talk to you for 20 minutes or half an hour, and he would clearly be able to I said, no, you you didn't win them all. But I would say that he probably won 90% of the time. And here's Tony Hurd's view. Well, you know, they said about John Kennedy that he had style. He just had style. And, you know, some some people who tried to stand for president, when they said they were like Kennedy, people just laughed. Uh, George had style. And he he was always very, um, you know, well, if not naturally dressed, he uh, could dine well. He 
He was charming. And he, those sort of slightly oriental eyes that George had would be sort of beadily going around wherever he was, picking out good people, summing them up, always going to their worst enemies to find out what they were really like. You know, that's quite a good thing to do. And um, checking, checking. And so I'd say he chose those people very, very carefully. And they then joined a very exciting small group where every press night, which is once a week on Thursday nights, and I was, you know, honored to be there on quite a few occasions. It would be like a seminar on economics where you all work on the final product, brief, a very small staff, rewriting, changing, printers screaming for the copy, and yet turning out a, a work of art every week. And George involved his staff in that, and it was very exciting for them. And that's why they stayed. I know there were breaks and that, and, you know, obviously newspapers have people who do come and go, but they're a very good team, including the chap called Dirk Carstens, the surveys uh, manager who was advertising. But that started a tradition of some of the best surveys that this country's ever seen. In his recently published book, Between Two Fires, Holding the Liberal Center in South African Politics, John Kane Berman devotes a lot of space to the six years that he worked under Palmer at the Financial Mail. Kane Berman, who was chief executive of the country's Institute of Race Relations for 30 years, recalls Palmer's unique management style. Well, he let them get on with it, but they had to adhere to very high standards, uh, high standards in writing, high standards of accuracy, high standards of integrity and honesty. He set the standards. He didn't let them drop. He enforced them. You had to adhere to them, or you would sooner or later be out. Would you describe him as a micromanager in a modern sense? No, I wouldn't. He edited stuff quite carefully and scrupulously, but when he did so, he explained to you the changes that he was making and why. So it was a process of learning. The other thing that disqualifies him from any accusations of micromanagement is that he generally gave you the opportunity to state a point of view on behalf of the FM. I wrote many leaders for him. Whether he personally agreed with them all or not, I have no idea, but that wasn't the point. The point was that you have to write stuff that was generally in line with the broad editorial viewpoint of the FM. Whether he agreed with each and everything that was published in the name of the FM, I doubt very much indeed, but he gave you the opportunity to state and argue a viewpoint, and provided you did it cogently and fairly and uh, with due regard to context, accuracy, and so on, he published it, provided uh, you argue your case properly and you wrote it in a compelling fashion. Another of Palmer's mentees was Alan Greenblow, who later became chief executive of the same media company that owns the Financial Mail. I was immensely fortunate that he was a mentor from the time that I started in the FM as a, as a youngster at the age of 21. Um, you know, I learned an enormous amount from Palmer and I'm grateful for the time that he invested in me. How did you get the job? By, by pure luck. I actually walked into the FM office one day and... Uh, and asked for it, and I was fortunate that George wasn't there, or he might not have employed me. But uh, I met uh, Peter Dermody, who was the deputy editor, 
and I started criticizing an editorial in the FM, and I didn't know that Peter had written it. So uh, I think he felt an <laughs> obligation to give me a job. <laughs> all, 21, all 21 years of you. <laughs> it sounds like someone else I know, Alan. It pays sometimes to be arrogant, huh? but uh, <laughs> I hope it's a bit, a bit muted now. And, and uh, it, it is an extraordinary opportunity to have been able to, to work at such a young age, at such a prestigious publication. When you first met George Palmer, uh, did you take to him? Um, very much. I mean, I was, I was actually quite frightened of him. I started in the, in the Cape Town office of the FM, and I actually only met George after I'd been on the FM for about seven months. But where I was fortunate is that he, he, uh, he asked me to write an editorial, which was right up my alley. Well, the story was right up my alley, and he, um, he came back, and I remember the, the telex I got from him to say, he seemed to have grasped uh, our requirements remarkably quickly. So that gave me the confidence to, to sort of launch off. Um, but, I mean, Palmer's, Palmer's method, I mean, simply as, it, uh, as, as, as I experienced it, was to throw you into the deep end on a, on a three-month trial basis and see whether you would sink or swim. Um, and he was quickly able to assess from the, the copy that you submitted over that period of whether or not you had potential. So I think there was quite a trial and error um, amongst the younger recruits and those who swam. I mean, many did very well and became specialists in, in particular uh, in particular spheres, banking or mining or labor, um, and, and very well respected as authorities in those areas. One of the appeals that I had was I had an American passport. I could travel beyond the places that were off-limits to white South Africans. Did you? Indeed, I did. I spent a lot of time in Angola and Mozambique and Zambia. And these were places that it wasn't easy if you were carrying a South African passport to go. Did George Palmer see that in you when he hired you, perhaps? I think so, because he did send me often to Rhodesia. Now, Rhodesia was never a problem for a South African passport holder. But uh, I think he thought, look, these are fresh eyes at least. These are. <laughs> this is a person who's looking at this from a different perspective. And uh, I, I remember after those six weeks, George sent me a note, two, three sentences. I still have it. It said, um, you indeed have made a contribution, and I'm boosting your monthly pay by 50 rand. 50 rand? Is <laughs> <laughs> it about $3? <laughs> All hearty was... Uh... I uh, watched the bottom line, no doubt, pretty carefully. But, but, but seriously, whenever I spoke to people who worked with him, yourself included, it's almost as though he was regarded uh, with some kind of reverence, that he was put onto a pedestal. Why was that? Well, it was clear that this was an imperious figure who did not tolerate any kind of slack conduct. You produced the work or you were out. People were fired. Michael Holman in London, at, he made his career ultimately at the Financial Times, said he was terrified of George Palmer. I remember George said to me, pull up your socks, young man. And boy, I knew what he meant. Barry, you went on from uh, those early beginnings in South Africa to a, a glittering career around the world. Did you meet any other editors of the same ilk or work with any other editors of the same uh, caliber as George Palmer? I don't think so. 
that's the quick answer. Um, look, American journalism is quite different from the Fleet Street journalism that George Palmer embodied. And by the way, I think that uh, the standards of South African journalism are fantastic. And it, uh, you don't have to go beyond, say, Alistair Sparks. I mean, this is, you know, Percy Gabosa. Um, but I'm wandering a bit from your question of editors I've worked with. But first of all, I have immense respect for the editors in South Africa, of which you are the latest embodiment. I've had editors at Voice of America. I've had editors at USA Today. I've had editors um, at other freelance publications, but um, no, I I learned journalism proudly, I say, with George Palmer. Uh, George always said, never use two words when one will do. Get to the fact, put it up at the top. And by the way, you know, when George went to work for Business Week in New York, and he didn't last there, it was he didn't fit, but he came away with one very powerful sentiment and that was a fast read time magazine had pioneered this notion of a fast read that means get the get the lead right at the top make it short pithy get to the point and leave the reader wanting more so george was um, by far the best editor i ever had high praise indeed but certainly not unique others felt exactly the same here's tony hurd Certainly, the finest editor I ever worked with in my life, and I, I was, you know, thirty, forty years in journalism. Why do you say that, Tony? And, uh, what made him great? I'll, I'll, I'll just list briefly, if I might. Um, number one, he had a very um, engaging, pleasant nature. So when you met him, you didn't get a sort of scowl on your face. He had a disarmingly sort of pleasant nature, but he was deeply tough beneath it all. He had what I'd call, uh, there's no doubt, his clarity of thought was quite remarkable. It was the academic train, the trained academic going into journalism and making it work. doesn't always work. With him, it worked brilliantly. He wrote longhand, by the way, and he'd write the clearest sort of expositions of the budget the same afternoon it was given and get it uh, telex to his office uh, by Fingers van der Merwe, who was a famous telex guy there in Parliament. And he'd write it all longhand, and he hardly had a correction. His thinking was clear as a bell. He was very decisive and very thorough. He, had, he was independent-minded, but he, and he had strong convictions, but at, at the same time a very strong uh, commitment to being scrupulously fair. Now, we all know you can be fair and you can be not so fair and you can sound fair but not be fair. Well, he, he believed you had to go out of your way to get the other side. Sometimes you had to get had to try harder to get the other side. And then you take your bearings and make your decisions. And then that's where his courage came in, where he really took some decisions to run stories which really were legendary. Do you remember any of them? Yeah, I remember a couple. Um, I remember when he, well, number one, he clashed with um, uh, dubious financial people, one of whom claimed 
millions from him. And so, of course, the first thing George did, he just framed it in his office. You know, that's, that's what he thought about that. He, um, there, there were quite a lot of sort of major financial scandals in those days. There was a thing called Alwavo, a thing called Parity Insurance, Trans-Africa, things, the names that have disappeared into the past, but it, in, it, in, it required enormous courage by a person like Palmer and others in the press, and I will, will mention Joel Mervis of the Sunday Times here, and others, to, to dig this stuff out, risk the libel actions. He also took on the government in a very strong way. He, he summarily, one day, in a, in a financial mail editorial, page one, uh, cover story. He told the Registrar of Financial Institutions that he was incompetent and should resign immediately. That took some courage. Why did you all want to work for him? What was it about the man that attracted you, or about the editor that attracted you? Well, he, he was he was inspiring. You know, he demanded high standards, so you were always wanting to lift your game. And and I must tell you that there was hardly a, a stronger motivator than a word of praise from Palmer. You know, we lived for that. And it was added to the depth of your experience, your confidence, your ability. So working for him when his capitulation was growing. Tony, if a young journalist uh, wants to become a great editor and you have this role model, not only the one that we're discussing in George Palmer, but indeed your your own experiences, how would you guide them? What kind of a checklist would you give them? Well, I'd, I'd say, number one, every single citizen can be a great editor now. I mean, that's the big difference. Citizen journalism is quite remarkable. You can sit in a, in a hovel and you can, you can wow the world. So, I mean, it, it, it goes beyond journalism. But I'd say, you know, very nice remarks you say about me, but you, you'll find my detractors exist. And uh, the beauty of having been known years ago, is rather like James Dean. As you get older, people think you're even better than you were, but thank you. <laughs> um, the, I would say that the important thing is to rediscover the, the basic principles of journalism without becoming fuddy-duddy and old-fashioned about it. In other words, to take the best, and the best is very simply what I'd call the Palmer recipe of checking both sides against one another, particularly if there's a controversy, and taking your bearings carefully and then presenting something that is uniquely thought out, not just a mishmash of what's on elsewhere. And I'm sure Palmer wouldn't make that mistake. Uh, there's other shibboleths that, that have gone around, sometimes found to be vastly wrong or even concocted in such a way that they'll cause maximum trouble. And I think that uh, the, the sort of doubting mind of the good journalist is the first thing that a youngster has to develop. And then to take pride and use a lot of energy in actually getting the other side of the story, even if you don't like it. George Palmer left South Africa in 1977, and as you might expect, there's quite a backstory to that one too. When... Graham Hatton and I think perhaps Kane Berman, maybe it was Ken Romaine, the deputy editor, they went up to see John Foster. This must have been in the months following Soweto. And Palmer and the others waited 
and Foster would not see them, even though the appointment had been scheduled. Palmer ultimately said to the secretary, look, we've come all the way from Joburg. Can't we at least shake hands and wish the prime minister well? Foster came out, and they did shake hands. But when Foster was going down this line, he reached Palmer and pointed his finger and said, Palmer, you're an enemy of the state. George, in his telling of this, says, without any hesitation, he said, Prime Minister, you're the enemy of the state. Shortly thereafter, according to George, the special branch went through the offices of the FM. And it was then, Palmer said, We've become a police state. I want nothing more to do with it. And I think it was somewhere in the first quarter of 77 that he took the job in New York. Quite a story. But who was this man who struck such awe into some of the smartest minds in his field? But the, his office is such a mess. You can't believe. He was the most untidy person. He never filed anything. It was He always thought he was just called the library for clippings files. So we had newspapers piled up in piles. He just didn't even notice they were there. If it was, if it was in a drawer, he would lose it. And so it, all these piles of papers and articles were just piled up all over floors or whatever tabletop he could find. So um, that was George, <laughs> because he needed secretaries and filing and clippings and librarians and clipping file people to keep it all organized. He did about four or five of those, and he loved, he was so good. You know, he just, he just had a way of absorbing material and, as I was saying, getting, being able to go to the core of the issues, which really was his absolute genius, I think. Um, but that's a special aptitude that you have. Um, I think he was able to do it when he questioned his journalists. Did he read a lot? Oh, constantly, all the time. And he delved into newspapers. And don't forget, he came out of Br uh, British schools. And, you know, in his, you, where you go to, uh, first of all, he was always a bright boy. He was always very athletic. Um, he, he, he realized he had a good brain. George's mother died when he was 12. His father when he was 16. He was blessed with a really excellent brain, good schools in England and debating societies where I think he, he learned to control and also use a debate to get rid of his anger. I mean, of course, you're a child without parents by the age of 16. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a combination of events. Uh, so he was a magnificent debater. I mean, I had seen him so often moderating conferences you know, he was called in, I think, of one in particular down here in the desert, uh, a financial one. Um, and I'm not sure who, I can't remember who it was put on by, um, where somebody had fallen out and they said, George, could you just, you know, help us out? I mean, he had a, he had a, he had a dazzling brain, he had the sort of brain that was able to, ex to eliminate all the noise and get to the absolute core of an issue. So he had, he, he had a love of language. Um, he read voraciously. Um, he absorbed, um, 
absorb things um, and that he just would get to the kernel. He would read quickly, absorb very well. He had an exceptionally fast mind and a tremendously um, capacity to, to absorb a lot of fact, but then to draw clear con- conclusions. And a lot of that I think he did pick up from John Marvin in, in financial journalism. Because John was well trained in Fleet Street and really knew his game. And so George had a lot of contacts at The Economist, The Investor's Chronicle, Business Week in the United States and elsewhere. And he used those. Hmm. And, and he would read any current thing, you know, the, you know not, not just uh, the summaries or the, or the reviews, but he would get down and read them. Spend a lot of time on stuff. So given the esteem with which he's held, a George Palmer autobiography would have been a wonderful guide for editors, but he never wrote one. Hazel explains why. And many people begged him to write his book of his, his years uh, on the FM and thereafter, and his years as, num- as, the, as number two at Business Week when it was you know, really in its heyday and a financial publication um, of some standing. George was forward-looking, and I knew that if George started writing his memoirs, he would be dead in six months, because George did not look in the rearview mirror. That's just not the way he lived his life. So to write a book about the old days, looking back, you know, he would joke, yes, he would do it, but that was not, that was not in his DNA. It just was not in his personality to look back. Okay, so no memoirs. No role models either? That's an interesting question. We discussed Churchill a lot. And, there were, you know, he always saw the right man at the right time. Um, role models, I think he had great respect for John Marvin, who, was, who taught him to write. As he said, he thought he could write, and then John Marvin, when they started the FM, you know, blue-penciled everything he did. I think he just had great respect rather than role models. He had role models as a young man, but they weren't intellectual. They were three older people who he met, um, and he became uh, who he, they would uh, they they were uh, weight body lift body um, builders and weightlifters, and um, he found an outlet in for his pain as a child um, in um, training physical training weightlifting. He was actually a bodybuilder at one stage and in his youth. Um, and so he, I know, I, I really don't, I, I can't think of anybody that stands out. He had great respect for John Marvin. He had great respect for his FM team individually. I don't think he had role models that stand out to me that I can, after 32 years, that I can remember. Um, That's not how, he didn't have role models in the sense he had people with issues and minds that he respected enormously. Okay, so there's no handbook, there's no autobiography, there's no role models, but any working or prospective journalist can learn a great deal from those privileged few who worked very closely with this great editor. So let's hear what they have to say. If you were telling a young journalist today and giving them a checklist and saying this is how to become a great editor what would you take from the Palmer playbook well first of all look for intelligence look for an inquiring mind and shape them 
I don't think that George had much um, interest in those who had been to journalism school. I mean, after all, journalism schools are only 30, 40 years old. And my reflections go back uh, nearly 40 years now. But look for intelligent people. Then establish very high standards. And nothing goes into the book. It was always called the book unless it was something people wanted to read. So then you have to have people who are absolutely determined to find out what is happening and leave their preconceptions, their politics, aside. Now, I know I said that George was a crusader against apartheid, but that doesn't have anything to do with the collection of facts, let's say, about the Group Areas Act or the implementation of the Group Areas Act. You know, many of these uh, absolutely heartbreaking stories of apartheid South Africa, um, you know, it was simply a matter of listening to people, writing down what they said, and then producing it in sharp, concise copy. George was absolutely insistent that the copy be easy to read, or as he later said, a fast read that was effective. What did you take from him that you applied in your career later? Uh, I, I, you look, I mean, the more I could have emulated Palmer, the, the, the happier I'd be. But one does try to, to sort of emulate that sense of integrity, um, and that's the, the sort of thing which, we're, which we know which I would illustrate. For example, you know, Palmer always had a very strict Chinese war between the advertising and the editorial departments. He would never allow uh, an advertiser to influence editorial, um, and he would never use editorial columns to pander for advertising. So he was completely deaf to advertisers who came along and said, you know, we'll give you an ad if you write something about us. I mean, it just never weighed with him. Um, and another area was really on shareholders. Uh, at, you know, at the time, especially to the, to the uh, 60s and the 70s, the Nationalist Party government was continually criticizing the English language press and saying that uh, you know, it was controlled by Anglo-American. In fact, the largest single shareholder in the controlling shareholder of SA Associated Newspapers, which owned the FM, was Anglo. And I actually had an experience where I wrote something about Anglo, which Anglo didn't want published. And uh, Palmer immediately insisted that I that I put the the, the, the copy onto his desk, and uh, he published it that week. The consequence was that it actually cost Anglo uh, quite a lot of money to complete the project that it had started. Would you say that uh, Palmer taught you stuff that that can be used by editors today, and perhaps isn't? Yeah, you know, there were there were numerous things. I mean, to be crisp. To be fair, to get to the point quickly, um, not to use long sentences, and uh, and he, he also tried to ensure that there was a punchy intro, to make sure that by the introduction he would really be enticing the reader to to read on. So there were those basic lessons, and uh, but, but I mean vitally important, and they've always been top of my mind in my own writing and uh, and in editing other people's copy. You know, it's also been obvious to me that. In order to have a quality consistency, um, the editor actually must take responsibility. And, and that's where Palmer was so good in actually editing every bit of raw copy that actually uh, was to be published in the magazine. Um, 
he wouldn't, uh, and he would ultimately take responsibility for it. And if it was critical or if it was inaccurate or whatever, Palmer would stand by you. So that also helped grow one's confidence. Well, he was highly, highly intelligent. Uh, he was a strong personality. He was himself a superb writer, a superb wordsmith and craftsman. He nourished a number of us that were able to write pretty freely within a broad context. And I don't think there are terribly many editors that have all those attributes today. He also had political guts. He didn't seem to be in any way afraid of the National Party government or feel the need to kowtow to its threats. He knew strategically how to deploy his courage. Uh, some people are like, they, they use their courage like buckshot and they end up getting in, tying themselves in knots. George was exceptionally targeted and like a rifle shot. He would plan something very carefully very dis disarmingly sort of go about getting the information gathered by quite remarkable staff of people. He only, he, you know, he trained a whole generation of financial journalists and others, and then go for it. And he had this way of, when he fired something out there in the business community or in South Africa in general, it, there was a huge sort of impact. And for that, I think he goes down in our history as one of the finest editors imaginable. It is the wish of any wise man to remain productive, to be able to contribute to society well into their old age. That is another of Palmer's achievements. And on top of that, he had a lot of fun doing it. Yes, he was committed to tennis and he was committed to fitness. And, um, you know, Palm Springs, which is, what, a couple hours, three hours east of Los Angeles, before you get into the desert, uh, it's a very agreeable climate. And uh, his second wife, uh, uh, Hazel Shore, is, is a, was a tennis professional. So I think tennis was a very important part of their life. They had money. They spent uh, the North American summers, in, in uh, the Northern Hemisphere summers in Britain and in France. Uh, he was a very happy and engaged person, and um, it was a great love affair between he and Hazel. So, uh, yes. Did he read much? Yes, he did. He read all the time. And Hazel tells the story that um, what really brought George down within the last year was that his hearing had deteriorated so that he could no longer teach something called, you know, retirement learning, and he had classes of more than a hundred people that he taught uh, global economics and he loved this and that was in Palm Springs at the campus of the University of California at Riverside so um, he was very engaged but you know ultimately his his hearing gave out and Helen uh, Hazel said that was a, a very significant setback he was constantly on the tennis court he went to the gym uh, where by the time he got to 90, when she was when his wife uh, Hazel took him to hospital, uh, they said, "What medication?" And, and he said, "None." So then they turned to her and said, "You know, come on, uh, what medication is he on?" And she said, "None." So he got to the age of 90 with virtually, I think, no medication at all. He's just having a bit of trouble with his eyes. 
So he looked after himself and he fought hard as a very fine journalist with a very fine team around him. So what is George Palmer's epitaph? Hazel Shaw, as always, nails it. I think if you want to know about George, he was not for sale. There are many a journalist, unfortunately, who um, in the financial world, um, whom you may or may not know, who in fact used inside information for their own gain, and that is true then as it is now, and we, you know, and some of them you will know by name. Um, but what I can say about what you can write, and I would love you to write this, George was never for sale. Well, I don't know how we can better that uh, to close off this edition of The Rational Perspective, our first episode of 2018. Well, it's a bit longer than the usual half hour, but I'm sure you'll agree the late, great George Palmer was certainly worth it. Until the next time, so long. <laughs>